thank you, Sarahs. Appreciate that, don't we? It's very good. They play like they like their names together. So just, just perfect together. Appreciate that very much. Pastor Mike was making comment about the 4K ultra-deaf televisions, and so I just wanted you to know I did steam the parts of my shirt that you can actually see today. <laughs> and uh, so my wife will be glad to know I did that as well. For, so for those of you at home, the parts that you see are wrinkle-free, I trust, and uh, you can't see the rest, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Psalm 110. I'm going to take a moment here to read the psalm in its entirety. It's only seven verses, and so we can certainly withstand that today. And then I'll open with a word of introduction. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Verse 3. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. You know, the Wizard of Oz gives us a humorous look at the reality that there is often a man behind the curtain. I love that picture, don't you? It's a strong one that stays with us, and we can appreciate uh, Dorothy seemingly all uh, faced with an all-powerful wizard, really just to see a little pipsqueak of a guy behind there. The wizard, spoiler alert, is a sham. But history reveals that kings and presidents were successful or scandalous based on the men that they listen to, the men behind their curtain, as it were. In fact, our first president, George Washington, recognized the need for more men behind his curtain. He needed more advisors, and the Constitution simply just said that he could, from time to time, invoke a Senate seat and, and have session with the Senate. Can you imagine that? For consultation when he needed it. Well, things obviously don't work that way quite today. George Washington created the first and the lasting institution of the president's cabinet. It's not a constitutional thing. That's a George Washington thing. And men like Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson and others were his critical first advisors. President Franklin, FDR, Franklin Roosevelt was transparent for his need for such advisors, such men behind the curtain, as it will. In fact, he relied on one such advisor supremely. His name was Harry Hopkins. It was such a strong reliance that it often invoked jealousy and tension in the administration. When asked why he 
afforded Harry Hopkins such an incredible position in his ear, uh, Roosevelt replied, Someday you may well be sitting here. In fact, the individual that asked that question ran for president the year before. He said, Someday you may well be sitting here where I am now president of the United States. And when you are, you'll be looking at that door over there and knowing that practically everybody who walks through it wants something out of you. You'll learn what a lonely job this is and discover the need for somebody like Harry Hopkins who asks for nothing except to serve you. I thought that was pretty remarkable. Roosevelt particularly leaned on Hopkins in time of crisis. He even had Hopkins meet with Churchill and Stalin and others on diplomatically sensitive missions. It could be said that it is not the man so much as the people behind the man that matter. And I believe that resonates particularly well in a disciple-making culture, if you think about it. We all stand on others' shoulders. We all lean on the advice and the counsel of others who have gone before in the Word of God and, and who are willingly speaking into our ear, and we're letting them do so. And so that question also looms true, I believe, on this psalm, Psalm 110. Who is the man behind you? That's the question we're going to ask of this psalm. And I believe this psalm kind of rolls down the window to tell us. In fact, our psalm has a historical setting that allows us to get a bit more specific than that. Our psalm, uh, like other psalms, is no exception of this kind of historical setting. In fact, if you hold your finger here in Psalm 110 and go to Psalm 103, excuse me, 1, forget the 1, Psalm 3. Just go to Psalm 3. I chose that one so it would be easy to find right in the book of Psalms, which of course is super easy to find, right? So go there. Now, you'll see a title, right? Something like Morning Prayer of Trust in God. That's what the NASB has. That is a helpful heading. It's just helpful. It's not part of the original text in Psalm 3. However, there should be a smaller textual note underneath it. And it will read something like a Psalm of David. You see that? When he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, those are historical notations. They're placed there during the assembling of the Psalter and they're just as much a part of the Old Testament as anything. They're trustworthy. They're reliable. And they're even versified in the Hebrew Bible. One man uh, puts it bluntly this way. He says, a custom of placing the title above the psalm, and he's talking about the historical note, like a psalm of David as he fled from Absalom, rather than as part of verse 1 is a matter of convenience, which does not alter its status as part of the text. Psalm 3 gives us a pretty specific historical setting. You could look up that historical setting in 2 Samuel chapter 15, and we could really understand what, what is all going on in David's mind a lot in Psalm 3 because of the recorded historical setting in 2 Samuel chapter 15, a real historical event where David had to flee from his son. Well, turn back to Psalm 110. My point in walking through that little exercise is that Psalm 110 is no less historical like Psalm 3 or like all the other psalms in the Bible, like all the Old Testament is. 
We have to understand uh, uh, the, New, the Old Testament in light of its history, in light of its intended meaning. And so in Psalm 110, what is our historical note? What is it? A psalm of David. <laughs> it's not earth-shattering. That's it. That's it, folks. And that's important. And we'll try to make clear why that's important in a little bit. But it's no less historical. This was a psalm authored, written, coming out of the mouth of King David. And that's helpful for us to understand. Because some men and women try to read into the historical setting of this psalm, but we're not going to do that because we don't do that here. It's bad hermeneutical principle. The New Testament, however, gives us an incredible wealth of information regarding this psalm. And that is incredibly helpful, and we shouldn't just dismiss it. In fact, we should run to it. And that's what we're going to do today. In fact, to give you an idea of the wealth of inspired information that the New Testament brings to light of this singular Old Testament psalm, consider this. Out of the New Testament, 27 books, 11 of them quote or allude to this psalm alone. Far more than any other psalm. Jesus quotes it. That should say something. Peter quotes it. Paul quotes and alludes to it. The author of Hebrews essentially exposits it. He basically makes a sermon out of it. Seems that the Holy Spirit doesn't want the New Testament reader to go any too far within the New Testament and read and be called to remembrance Psalm 110. So that should be uh, very instructive for us today. And that question that we are bringing to mind is, who is the man behind you? Applying the historical setting to this question, we can really say, who is the man behind King David? Who is the man behind King David? After all, the psalm is a psalm of David. A casual look at Psalm 110 reveals that this is no no ordinary man. This is an extraordinary one. In fact, in verse 1, he's David's Lord or Master. He has a scepter and rules in verse 2. He has armies in verse 3. And he is quite powerful, all-powerful in verses 5 and 6. It's apparent that this man behind David can be rightly described as a king. Right? In fact, the Nazbi gives us an uninspired title, the Lord gives dominion to the king. And so who are we talking about? Well, some will say, well, we're talking about King David. And that would be missing the historical setting of this psalm. So we're going to want to ask the question a little further, get a little bit more specific, not just who is the king behind David, but what kind of king now do God's people have? What kind of king do you and I have? And boy, isn't that a timely question for us today, right? My goal today is not to merely make application to the election. So if you came wanting application to the election today, come next week, Pastor Tim will be back. (laughs) 
No, in all seriousness, we need application. But this psalm is not merely for, next, for this coming Tuesday. This psalm is all about every day for someone who claims King Jesus in their lives. And so I want to strongly assure you that this psalm is paramount for today and for all the days to come. And it will bring comfort and is ought to be a catalyst for today and every day. So what kind of king do God's people have? Well, the structure of the psalm really helps us answer this question. And it's really in two parts. Okay? The first is what is true about our king today? What is true about our king now? And the second part is what is true about our king in the future? What will be true about our king? Okay, so we're going to see that structure and we're going to really let the text speak for itself and tell us what is true about the king today, right? Simple. And what will be true about the king? And to really splice between the two is absolutely critical as we make application for our lives today in light of the future. And so verses 1 and 4, if you want to put a notation next to that, are really verses that speak of the king today. And it's no accident that, that those are the verses that the New Testament speaks of. Nearly all those verses in the New Testament, all the verses that the New Testament alludes to or quotes of Psalm 110, comes from verses 1 or verses 4. It's focused on who our king is what? Today. Certainly there's allusion to what our king will be in the, in the New Testament. But those future allusions are found in verses 2, 3, 5, 6, and 7. And so let's look at the current position of our king. The current position of our king, and it's one who's sitting on the right hand of God's throne in heaven. And the current position of our king is a superior one, folks. That is the first point. God, our, or Jesus, our king, is superior. He is superior. We see that in verse 1. The Lord, Yahweh, see your Bible should have all caps. Most Bibles do that, have all caps where it says the Lord there, right? That is the Lord, Yahweh. That is the personal name for the God of heaven. And then there's another Lord. The Lord says to my Lord, that's in uh, one uppercase, but usually, but all lowercase after that. And that is Adon. That is master. Okay? So Yahweh says to my, that's David's Lord, what? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So there are three people in this verse. Okay? In the first line of this verse. There's Yahweh, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. There's my, and who is that? That's David, King David. And there is Lord, or Master. And that word Lord or Master is the standard term for respect. It signifies the way anyone would speak to a superior. And some people dispute that reading. They dispute that a king like David could have a what? A master. 
There's no way historically that David would ever say that about himself, they say. Well, that sounds really good, doesn't it? Until you flip over to the New Testament. And the New Testament really just hits it home, folks. And so take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. And look at verse 41. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees here. And this is uh, during the Passion Week, and, and he's discussing with them, and, and he says this. They're, they're having a, we're kind of inserting ourselves in the dialogue for, for time's sake. But he says, Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? So did I tell you the verse, Matthew, uh, chapter 22, verse 41? All right, so Matthew chapter 22, verse 41. All right, I read that, so verse 42. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? So this is Jesus saying, what do you think about the Messiah? Okay, he's obviously speaking of himself, but the Pharisees aren't, Pharisees aren't necessarily recognizing that. And he says, whose son is the Messiah? The Pharisees said to him, the what? The son of David. Well, that was no bombshell. That was typical Old Testament teaching. So the Messiah would be the son of David. Come from David's lineage. So the Jews understood that. Jesus affirms that, but yet he amplifies Psalm 110 here. He says in verse 43, He said to them, that's Jesus saying to the Pharisees, Then how does David, King David, in the Spirit, in other words, via inspiration of the Spirit, i.e., Psalm 110, call him what? Master, King, Lord. Right? Saying, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, sit at my right, my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Jesus goes on and says, if David then calls him Lord or Master, how is he his son? That was, that was, that was unfathomable. It's still unfathomable today. Isn't the father greater than the what? The son. Certainly in the Jewish culture that was true. Even in our culture today, you typically, right, sons ought to respect their fathers. So how in the world could David call one of his sons? Regardless of how far, how could he call him what? Master, Lord. And what do they, how do they respond? Well, verse 46, you see it there. End of conversation. By the way, we won't ask you any more questions. Stumped. In Acts chapter 2, Peter does the same thing. He, he states that David is the author of the psalm, and Jesus is David's Lord. Folks, there is no other way, and, and, and this may seem really elementary, quite frankly it is, but there's so much literature out there, and there's, so much, there's, so, there's such a way to go on this psalm that is critical that we understand Psalm 110, that it is what's called a messianic psalm. It is strongly referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we can bank on it because Jesus himself exposits this psalm for us. And so does the author of Hebrews underneath Inspiration via the Holy Spirit. And so David is the author. David is speaking about his Lord, Master, and King. And David's Lord, Master, and King is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Jesus Christ is more superior 
than King David. He's more significant than King David, and there was no more significant king before or after. And so he's superior, my friends. And he's also superior as not just king, but as priest. Look at verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So we've got to park here a little bit because the New Testament, quite frank, frankly, parks here. And, and it's the easiest thing for an expositor to let the, the Word of God exposit the text. And I think we ought to do that. And, and so I have a great privilege of, of walking us through just what exactly the Holy Spirit is saying here. And, and my conscience can, can be absolutely clear on this exposition because it's not mine. <laughs> it's the Holy Spirit's. And so in a moment, we're going to turn to Hebrews and see that. But he is superior as a priest the Lord Yahweh, in verse 4, has sworn, made an oath about David's Lord that he would be a priest forever. And oh, by the way, it's an unconditional oath. It's a decree. We know that here. Why? Because God cannot change his mind about it. You say, well, what, well, well that brings up the whole question. Can God change his mind? Well, we're not going to really go down that path today. That's a great path to go down. But we're going we're gonna to very quickly just make a, a, a quick division for us so we can understand this. There are decrees of God in the Old Testament, right? Right? And then there are announcements of God. This is a decree. God cannot change his mind. Nothing can change it. No matter how I act towards God, no matter how anyone acts towards God, this cannot be changed. It is a decree, divine right from God. But sometimes there are announcements, and we do the same thing. Now, we're not all powerful and can decree like God can, but we like to announce a lot, and we can, we can be very uh, sympathetic to God's announcing certain things. For instance, in the book of Exodus, where uh, Moses comes down from the mountain of Sion, right? What happens? He finds them what? Israel is worshiping a golden what? calf. And God's pretty frustrated, isn't he? He's pretty jealous, isn't he? Rightfully so. He's angry about them worshiping this calf. And what does he say? He announces, he warns to them of his frustration, of his anger, of his righteous jealousy. And he says, what? I am going to destroy you. Doesn't he say that? He does, right? Was Israel destroyed? We know God, Moses pleads to God, and he pleads to God on, on, the, on, on behalf of God's reputation of his, for the sake of his name, right? And he says, no, don't do this. Look at all that you've done for Israel, all that you've brought them out of Egypt. Please pr uh, uh, keep your name among the nations. Well, this is essentially a strong warning to Israel. Stop what you're doing. It's an announcement. Every parent on every long car ride, we had a few of them this past October, announces from the front seat to the back seat when there's a bunch of rambunctious things going on, right? Stop what you're doing. Behave or what? I will pull this car over. Right? How many of you have said that? 
How many of you have actually pulled the car over? Most of us, okay, you guys are pretty good. That's pretty good, all right? So usually I'm in such a hurry that for me, that's not a decree. For me, that's just an announcement. <laughs> they haven't found out yet that I probably won't pull the car over, okay? Because I'm a person that goes from point A to point B, all right? But they know if I say that, what? They're going to stop because they don't want daddy to pull the car over. Right? Most of the time, that announcement works. It's a strong warning. And, and they change their mind. Now, some of you, you've raised your hands and, you, and you've had to pull the car over because they didn't change. They didn't respond to the announcement. So my illustration still stands. Right? But that's not the case here. God is on record, friends. This will not change. God will not change his mind. This is extraordinary. This is extraordinary because no king has ever served simultaneously as a priest and gotten away with it. In fact, from Israel's history, we understand that the kings come from the line of what? Judah, right? From David's line, the tribe of Judah. And the priests come from what? Levi and Aaron. Two separate tribes. Impossible for one to be the other. Well, God is not going to change his mind, and he's going to make it happen. And so let's move on and see how he does that. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. So we have this strong decree, and it's pretty clear in Psalm chapter 110, verse 4. But we don't have the details of it until we really move into the New Testament. We really move into, specifically, the book of Hebrews. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 1. And we're going to kind of try to draw a little bit of a line in Hebrews uh, this morning. And so I hopefully, that, hopefully that will be helpful as we try to understand the context of Psalm 110. So we're going to look at Jesus' priestly work. How is it that a king can be a priest? All right. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. And Jesus is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation as of God, of God's nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had, listen to these words, made purification of sins. What kind of work is that? Is that a kingly kind of work? No, that's very much priestly, isn't it? made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There's Psalm 110. Right? Verse 4, having become much better than the angels, having inherited a much more excellent name than they have. There's Psalm 110, where, where, where David calls Jesus his Lord. You are superior to King David. You are superior to the angels. You have a more excellent name, even than they. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. So just as David said, my Lord, and his superior, uh, Jesus is superior to David, so too Jesus is superior to the angels. And then we see really the tying together of, of priest and king in verse 1. Hebrews chapter 8. Now the main point... Boy, wouldn't that be nice if, 
if, if, the, if, if the authors of the New Testament just kind of stopped us in, in their tracks like the author of Hebrews does and say, listen to me, pretty much everything I've been saying up until this point, I want you to understand something. This is what it is about. So this is a pretty clear statement in Hebrews. What? What has been said is this. We have such a high priest. But what kind of high priest is it? Who has taken his seat at the right hand of the what? Of the throne. What does that sound like? Does that sound like a priest to you? That sounds like a king. A high priest who takes his rightful position on the right hand of the throne of the majesty. By the way, where's the throne right now? In the heavens. That's, that's going to be important in a second. It's the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So King Jesus' throne as a priest and as a king right now, currently. Remember I said that Psalm 110 is really dealing with our king in the current right now, and then our king in the what? In the future, right? We're still in the current. We're still looking at what the Bible has to say about this current king. And our current king is on the throne, but his throne is in heaven as a priest king. All right? Take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Chapter 10 and verse 12. And now we see here that he's not just any kind of king, and he's not just any kind of priest, but he's a superior king and priest. Look at verse 12 of chapter 10. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down, there's Psalm 110, at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. You see, no priest ever has had this said to him, that a priest could make a sacrifice once for all and then do what? Sit down. The priests had to continue and continue and continue to sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice, but not Jesus as our priest. Jesus as our high priest is the sufficient, superior one. And as a king, he is waiting, verse 13, from that time onward. So there's a time in the future that King Jesus will act differently. That's important for us to understand. So Jesus' priestly work is like no other. In fact, if you were to look at a uh, practicing Jew today, you would see that there is no longer, what? Priests. There's no temple. There's no sacrifice in the temple. And they don't have free. What do they have? They have rabbis. Right? But they don't have priests. Nowhere in the New Testament, nowhere in the New Testament, does it call for the need to have the office of priest. Yeah, we're individual priest believers, but not the office of priest. Why? Because Jesus and Jesus alone has fulfilled all that that priestly work needs to be once for all time. And so he is the sufficient, superior king priest. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. 
What kind of a sacrifice is this? What kind of a sacrifice does this one time, once for all priest give? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and here it is, Psalm 110, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. His priestly work is superior, folks, because Jesus himself gave himself. He endured the cross. And only he is worthy, therefore, to sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. And not only is Jesus superior because he is a priest, but he is also a priest forever. And so take your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 7. And really what we're looking at is back in Psalm 110 verse 4, where the Lord says, you are a priest, what? Forever. Forever. And so in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 14, let's just begin reading there. Because this is really going to elucidate or exposit or bring out what the Holy Spirit is saying in verse 4 of Psalm 110. So in chapter 7, verse 14, the author of Hebrews says, For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, kingly tribe, right? A tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing conserving priests. That was the Levites. And this is clearer still. If, any, if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who had no lineage, and we're going to see that in a second, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement. In other words, uh, Jesus, and, 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 and like Jesus, Melchizedek, did not become a priest based on physical requirement. Didn't become a priest because they were tied to the lineage of the Levites, right? But according to the power of an indestructible life. Well, what's that indestructible life? Where does that indestructible life come from? Well, look at verse 17. It's the very oath, remember, that we spent some time on, that cannot, what? Change. Verse 17 says, For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Verse 18, for on the one hand, there's a setting aside from a former commandment, that's the Mosaic law, that's the Levitical priesthood, because of its weakness and its uselessness. For the law, verse 19, made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope. That's the Lord Jesus Christ and his priesthood, through which we draw near. There's the consequence, drawing near to this, to God through this priest. Verse 20, and inasmuch as it was not without an oath. Here we're getting to the oath. For they indeed became priests without an oath. So who became priests without an oath? The Levites did. Right? How did they become priests? They became priests by merely be bo being born a Levite. That's how they became priests. That's what the author's saying. But he, who's he? But Jesus with an oath through the one who said to him, through Yahweh, who said to him, the Lord Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So folks, basically what the author of Hebrews is saying is this, to put it simply. Jesus is a priest because God said so. Because God decreed it, and it will not change. That's 
powerful stuff. Because no Jew today would ever accept a priesthood outside of the line of Aaron, outside of being a Levitical priest. And so the author of Hebrews essentially answers that problem. And he's actually going to go back in verses 1 through 10 of this same chapter in Hebrews chapter 7 and demonstrate to us just how it is that God, God even in the Old Testament, displayed that there could be a priest outside of the Levitical line. And that's really where we come in verse 4 of chapter 110, Psalm 110. I know we're kind of juggling these two around. Thanks for your patience. But where verse 4 says, You are a priest forever according to what? The order of Melchizedek. And that's super important. That's super important. So bear with me just a little bit more. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1, how does Melchizedek play into this? What is this teaching us? Well, Again, the author of Hebrews is arguing that there is a legitimate priesthood outside of Aaron and the Levites. Verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, and this is an ancient reference, we think, to Jerusalem. It's shortened, right? Jerusalem, right? You can kind of see that there a little bit. Priest of the Most High God. That was Melchizedek. He was a king, and he was a priest who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. That's Genesis 14, okay? We can go there and read that if we want to. To whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils. So what did Abraham do to Melchizedek? Abraham offered, gave a tithe to Melchizedek. We can see that in Genesis chapter 14. Was first of all, by the tra translation of his name, king of righteousness, this is Melchizedek, and then also king of Salem, or Shalom, or Shalom, which is king of peace. That's what it says there, right? Beautiful when the Holy Spirit exposits the text of Scripture. You can't argue with it. Verse 3. Without father, without mother, so this is Melchizedek, who is a figure, this mysterious figure that we only have in Genesis chapter 14 and Psalm 110 in the Old Testament. Without father, Melchizedek, without mother, without genealogy, all that the author of Hebrews is saying, he's not saying that he's some sort of... All, all that the author of Hebrews is saying, let's stick with all that he's saying, is that he's without genealogy. His mother and father are not known having neither beginning of days nor end of life. We don't know. Melchizedek shows up in Genesis chapter 14. We don't know where he came from. He shows up in Genesis chapter 14, and then he leaves. We don't know where he went. We don't know how long he lived. We don't know his mom. We don't know his dad. We don't know his genealogy. But he was made like the Son of God. He wasn't the Son of God. He wasn't equal to the Son of God. He was made like the Son of God. That's Hebrews saying that he was a shadow. He was a picture of Jesus Christ to come. He remains a priest perpetually. Now, verse 4. Now, observe how great this man who was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choice of spoils. So, observe, right, how special Melchizedek is. How outside the line of Jewish thinking Melchizedek is. Okay, are you following me? I know we're, we're, we're getting off here, but, but this is important for Psalm 110. Abraham gave a tenth 
the firsts to Melchizedek. In verse 5, And those indeed of the sons of Levi who receive the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people. So the Levites, via the Mosaic law, are told what? Collect a tenth. They have absolute right via the law to collect a tithe. Nothing is mentioned of Melchizedek. But this was right for Abraham to give a tenth to Melchizedek. You see, you following the, author, the author's thought line in Hebrews? And, by the way, he says in verse 5, they are descendants. The Levites are descendants of Abraham. But the one whose genealogy, verse 6, is not traced from the collected, uh, excuse me, but the one whose genealogy is not traced from the collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. So Melchizedek doesn't have a traced line. Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth. Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek. Verse 7, but without any dispute, the lesser is always blessed by the greater. Melchizedek is superior to what? Abraham. That's what the author's saying. He's greater than Abraham. All right? In verse 8, in this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in, so this case, the Levites, but in the case, but in that case, one receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. So, in other words, what he's saying is verse 9. And so to speak, that's what he's saying, right? Through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, what? Paid tithes. In other words, through Abraham's loins, Levi's, the Levites. The Levites did what to Melchizedek? Gave a tenth. You following that? You see that in verse number 9? In other words, Levi paid tribute and honor to Melchizedek. And Melchizedek was made like Jesus, verse 3. So there's no question that Hebrews demonstrates that there is a legitimate superior priesthood outside the line of the Levitical order. Does that make sense? Okay, a lot, I understand, but important. So Jesus is a superior king. and is a superior priest. What else does Jesus say, uh, Psalm 110 say about Jesus' current position as king and as priest? Well, are you sitting down? Of course you are. This is a little bit of a downer because as we've been talking about Jesus as superior king and superior priest, I, ha- I was having a really hard time finding a word outside of the text, so I'm probably going to stick with the word in the text. But if I had to find a word outside the text, and it doesn't quite communicate right because it has to be explained, and so that's probably not a good word. It's Jesus is, it's going to be a downer, so just be ready, inactive. Okay, and there's so, there's so many kind of ways that you can take that wrongly. And so that's why we're going to stay with Jesus is sitting. But if I were to use the word enacted, what do I mean? Well, Jesus is sitting or inactive as king. That, that, that doesn't mean that Jesus, that Jesus isn't sovereign right now. That doesn't mean that he isn't king right now. All that that means is that Jesus is on the throne, and Jesus' throne is where? According to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Do you remember? His throne in heaven. All right, that's pretty critical. Verse 1 and verse 4 see Jesus as king enthroned in heaven. Not on earth. Right? That's pretty obvious. 
You look around, does it look like Jesus is on the throne in earth? If, if you say yes, turn on your news. <laughs> I know pastor says turn it off. Here I am saying turn it on. But I'm only saying turning on to prove a point. Right? I mean, I could list for you all the words that came up in my mind in 2020. But I'm not going to do that. You already have the P1. All right? Riots, racial unrest, all kinds of things. Jesus clearly is not reigning on earth right now, right? That's pretty clear. Well, doesn't that, doesn't that kind of threaten God's sovereignty? No, my friends. If you look around, it only proves it. That Jesus is on the throne, but his throne right now is on heaven. Where will his throne be? Look at verse 2. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from what? From Zion, his throne will be moved. And he will sit on Jerusalem's throne. All right, and that's pretty critical. So Jesus is seated as king right now, but he's seated as king in heaven. So that's the sense that he's inactive. Not removed, not uh, callous or unconcerned, just seated, but enthroned. But he's also folks, seated as priest. And remember, we saw the picture in Hebrews chapter uh, 12 and in Hebrews chapter 10. I'm just going to read it for you. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 11 says, every priest stands ministering and offering from time after time after time the same sacrifices. Why? Because their work is never done. They stand daily. But not Jesus, the high priest. Verse 12 says, But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, as priest, is sitting, my friends, and that is significant. His work is done, and it is sufficient, and it covers all. And that is huge. You know, in the tabernacle, no piece of furniture afforded the priest to sit down. There were wash basins, there were altars, there, were, uh, there was the ark, uh, there, was, there was the lampstand, but there was no chair. But Jesus, Jesus sits, my friends. He sits. And so, you know, as we move into what the future will be, and we're going to take a very, very short amount of time on the future, so don't worry. But as we move into what the future will be of King Jesus reigning, we have to wrestle with the fact that that is not today. Today is a day to focus on Jesus as our high priest. Jesus as the one who offers salvation. We long for everything in our life to be made right. Right? You turn on the news and right away, make it right. My friends, Jesus has done something far greater for us now than make unrighteousness righteous in terms of acts. He has caused the hard heart to be made new. He has called the sinner to repentance in him. He has caused those who are dead spiritually to be made alive, and that is all his priestly work. 
That is the work that we are to focus on today in 2020. And so one quick final thing about Jesus is in his current position. Not only is he superior, my Lord, David says, not only does he sit, but he is also at God's right hand. And no one in the Old Testament is ever at God's right hand. No one in the New Testament is ever at God's right hand except for Jesus himself. And so for those of you who want to bring to God all that you have to offer, understand that you, like the rest of us, are not at God's right hand. And you, like the rest of us, cannot bring things to God and be honored like Jesus can bring things to God and be honored. Jesus brought his life to God and was honored. The rest of us are excluded from that, but because of his priestly work, we are included in it if you will take him as your Savior. My friends, that is the disposition of someone who understands where Jesus is right now in 2020. And so there are two divisions in the psalm. The first is where King Jesus is now, and the second is where King Jesus will, what, what will be true about him. And so we're going to just make some very quick glances at this. First of all, understand that there's a plan. Verse 1 tells us, until I make your enemies a footstool, which means that the enemies are out. The enemies are not a footstool right now. Turn on the news and you see it. Unrighteousness abounds. Peace is scarce. Security is insecurity. But my friends, there will be a day where Jesus will make all those enemies his footstool. That is an ancient Near East picture of a king on the throat of his enemy. Jesus will make his enemies submit. He will. But that, my friends, is not today. And the greatest need today is not physical safety, it's not civic security, it's not economic prosperity, but it's soul security, eternal security, and spiritual prosperity. And so, let's do our best to understand that there will be an until, but until, until, we're in the other side of the until. Okay. And so there's a plan, but there's also power. Notice the Lord will stretch out, verse 2, his strong scepter. Uh, The Lord will make his enemies his footstool. Jesus and Yahweh, verse 5 and 6, partner together just like they do in 2 and 3 to shatter kingdoms. The Lord is at your right hand. They're together right there. Judge nations. Fill them with corpses. Shatter the chief men. And so there is incredible partner displayed in the coming king. Unquestionable. But my friends, that kind of power does not exist today among nations and among rulers. But it does exist today in Jesus' priestly work where Jesus shatters the scales off people's eyes and causes them to see where he unbinds those who are enslaved to sin and causes them to be free in him. 
That is our greatest need. That is Jesus' greatest power right now. And so don't lose sight of that. That there is great power today, but it is in the gospel. And there will be a people. And simply because of time, I'm going to have you just write down, if you are taking notes or in the margin of your Bible, verse 3, this, this describes in very picture, pis, pitch, picturesque ways this army of people that will come with King Jesus. And just write in your margin, Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. And there's a picture. And that's in verse number 7. After Jesus is done making his enemies his footstool, shattering kings and nations, verse 7, he will drink from the brook by the wayside. In other words, he can stand there and he can take refreshment and he's not going to have to worry that someone's going to stab him in the back. His work is going to be complete as king. Verse 7, therefore he will lift up his head. Boy, that's quite a juxtaposition to verse 1 where he is seated on the throne, isn't it? Isn't that beautiful imagery? Jesus is going to stand victorious and he's going to raise his head. Can't say much better than that. And that's how the psalm ends. That Jesus will be unquestionably sovereign and he will rule and he will reign. And so, my friends, Psalm 110 gives us a vivid picture of the man behind King David. The king priest. Psalm 110 gives us a vivid picture of the man, the king behind God's people. The king priest. And so today, I want you to consider that now is not the time for absolute reign and for peace and for security. But now is the time of confident worship. Confident worship, my friends. Because Jesus has shattered the hardness of our hearts and made us new. There will be a future day where we will be able to walk the streets without fear. And if there is news, it will be peace! 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 But today, do not lose heart, O you who are subjects to King Jesus, that he offers peace to your heart. And so as we go out this week, and no matter what happens Tuesday, or when we find out Wednesday, or Thursday, or Friday, or whenever, <laughs> right? Some of you are like, how am I going to do this week? My friends, can I say, according to Psalm 110, it does not matter who wins the election. King Jesus is on the throne. And my friends, can I tell you that the greatest thing is not to, to have a platform or a party. 
Elections have consequences. Sure they do. But my friends, the greatest thing is that you live a worship-filled life that speaks the peace that you have to others so that others will come to peace through the high priest, the one, the king, Jesus. And that is our mission until Jesus comes. Father, I pray that you would help us, that you would help us today to rest in your work and understand exactly where we are in that work today. You are on the throne in heaven. And you, through your priestly work, have afforded a rotten sinner like me to draw near to the Father only because of marvelous, indescribable grace and love and mercy. Oh, Father, this week, help us to be people who are centered squarely and firmly in the priestly work of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he died and that our sins are forgiven and we have access and bold confidence to be worshipers. Help us to confidently worship this week, so much so that we are confident and competent witnesses of your great work and love for mankind. Lord, continue to keep us safe. Continue to use us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.